Well, hey, everybody. Um, we record these um, sermons, these messages on Friday afternoon. Uh, and so last week, uh, Lawrence Hagen, as you all know, went to be with the Lord on Saturday. And so I was unable to address that in the message that came to you all on Sunday um, because we record these on Friday. And so I know that this past week has been a um, heavy uh, time for us all. And um, and so just want to say, Judy, we love you. And we're going to be praying for uh, the Lord's comfort. Uh, and as all of us are sad for, for Lawrence, as we believe the Bible, this was gained for him. It is better to be with the Lord. Uh, but for us, it is uh, indeed uh, a sad, sad time. Uh, and, and, and beyond that, uh, I, I know there's a, a couple other situations uh, that, that, that are very um, trying and uh, hard and sad as well. And so I just want to, I guess, just acknowledge it and say that uh, I don't want to just go on and, and teach. If, if we're all gathering together, we could, we could talk and be together and, and share, uh, but we, we don't have that opportunity, at least not right now. And so I just, before we start 2 Corinthians, I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, but we will continue on through 2 Corinthians. Um, so uh, years ago, when, when I was in seminary, um, uh, we, were, we were taking a class and, and going into this class. I, I was looking forward to it. Um, however, what it ended up being wasn't quite what I expected. Now, the, the class was, was, uh, was church history. And so going into the class, what, what I imagined the, the, the class would be about, I imagined that we would study how, how the gospel went out, you know, from Jerusalem to the, to the ends of the earth. And so I thought it'd be stories about missionaries going to new uh, places, people converting cities, even converting and nations being uh, reached with the gospel. And, and that's just not quite what, what the class was, was on. And you know what it was on in, instead? In, instead of that, at least from my view at the time, it was really more of a class on heresy, on bad theology and bad teaching that, that really came in to the church at different points in history. And, you know, um, one of the uh, assignments we had uh, was uh, to read a book by a guy named uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, uh, and, and the book was about as cool as his name. It, it, was, it was a tough go to, to read through it. It's one of those things where, kind of like my, my days as a student, as a lot of kids say, you know, why are we studying this? This is pointless. And I remember feeling like that. But then as I was reading this book, that was just painful to read. And I knew this guy was, was, had been labeled a heretic, and he, was, he had bad teaching in this book that we had to read. It was really long, really difficult. I started to notice something. I, I started to notice that, that a lot of the stuff he was saying was being said uh, during that time by another author who was becoming somewhat popular. Uh, and, and during this time, there was a movement known as the uh, Emergent Movement. Uh, one of the uh, thought leaders of that movement was a guy named Brian McLaurin. And so as I'm, as I'm reading Frederick Schleiermacher, and I'm, I'm hearing this stuff about the Emergent Church and um, uh, Brian McLaurin, and I'm somewhat familiar with McLaurin's teaching, but not, not all that familiar. But there's some themes that I had picked up on that I was connecting with Schleiermacher. 
And, and so the, 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 what was happening with, with McLaurin and, and, and the emergent church and, and some of these folks, and, and again, in some ways, the emergent church is hard to define. They, they uh, in, in some ways, um, would not define themselves, just would ask kind of provoking questions that would lead to um, conclusions that were outside of what the Bible talks about. I'll get into that later. But anyway, it was helpful for me to see that, okay, this is, this is a lot of what's gone on with the church throughout history is that just as much as, as the gospel has advanced and, and gone to new places and new times, there's also a, a steady defense of the true gospel. And it's constantly under attack, and not just under attack from the outside, but under attack from the inside. And, and, and he, this guy, McLaurin, he wrote a book called a, a New Kind of Christian or A New Kind of Christianity. And it was interesting on, on something that that was, was kind of put out as, as a new kind of thing, as a revolutionary thing, was really something old. It was 200 years old. And even beyond that, the, the same type of ideas have been pushed. And they're, 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 subtle, uh, they're, they're subtle attempts to, to undermine the gospel. And these people are well-intentioned. I don't think they're trying to undermine the gospel. I think they're thinking they're recovering the true gospel, but really it's often undermining the gospel. And so the greatest threat to the church the greatest threat to the gospel isn't, isn't the world going bad. It, it isn't the, the legalization of gay marriage, or it isn't the, the moral decay in our culture. The greatest threat to the church and the gospel is from the inside, is from the, the truth of God and the gospel being distorted from within, from people who are likable, who are persuasive, who are really smart, who are really impressive and winsome, and they undermine the gospel in an attempt often to make the gospel or Christianity more palatable to the outside world. And, and you know, this is one of the dangers of evangelism becoming central in the church or reaching the lost, becoming a, the, the, the center of the church. Because here's the thing. God should be the center of the church, right? I mean, evangelism is, 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 our, is our mission, it's what we're doing, but it shouldn't be central. And if you take a good thing like that and make it central, then, then you, you might begin to, to think, well, maybe we need to change the message in order to be more effective in evangelism. And when you change the message, you change the gospel, you change who the Bible reveals God to be, then you've actually undermined your evangelism because what you're, the gospel is not really a gospel at all. So we need to be mindful about the kind of teaching we hear and what we're drawn to, whether it's a, a popular author or teacher or it's a podcast you, you listen to, or, or even if it's me. You know, I, I'm, I'm under the authority of the elders, and I'm accountable to the church. And so I'm not infallible, and, and it is right and good for you to go back and look at the Scriptures to see if you agree with what I said, if it, if it is aligned with the Scriptures, uh, because there is a sense where, where I could, could, could be off, and I'm not in, infallible. And so we need to test the teaching that we hear. So now, as we go into 2 Corinthians, uh, we're, we're leaving one section of 2 Corinthians and moving into uh, another section. Chapters 8 and 9 were about giving. Paul was uh, uh, getting the church in Macedonia and the Corinthian church, and they're going to put together these funds, and they're going to give it to, to send relief to the church in Jerusalem. And now, chapters 10 and 11 are, are, are shifting, and, and Paul is going to address his struggle with some false apostles, some false teachers who are influencing 
the Corinthians. So, so in our text today, Paul addresses a problem and how to address that problem. And so what I want to do is consider two things. What is the problem that Paul is addressing? And, and what should the response to that problem be? So first, what is the problem? Well, in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, Paul is acknowledging that he has been humble when face-to-face with them and bold when away. Uh, and he mentions earlier uh, in, in, in the letter and explains that the, the reason he was bold when away bold went away and humble when face to face was he was sending the letters ahead uh, so that when he was face to face and with them, uh, it could be a sweet time and it wouldn't have to be a confrontation. So he was sending this letter ahead of time. But there are some who are there who are causing problems for Paul. And that's what he's writing about. And he describes them as false apostles in chapter 11, verse 13. And sarcastically, he describes them as super apostles in chapter 12, verse 11. But in order to understand chapter 10, 1 through 6, we need to understand what's happening in chapters 10 and 11. Like 8 and 9, we're about giving, and there's something going on there. And in 10 and 11, we kind of have a new idea going on. And so we need to understand what's happening there. So to understand one text or paragraph in this, we need to understand the whole. And I think we get to the heart of Paul's main concern in chapter 11, verse 2 through 4. So uh, go ahead and get your Bibles out or, or pause the video and get your Bible or whatever. But I, wa- I want us to, to go back and forth and look at this. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 4, we read this. So this is Paul, and he's, we're, we're seeing what his concern is here in chapters 10 and 11. Chapter 11, verse 2 and 4, 2 through 4. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So, so Paul is not being territorial here uh, when it comes to these other so-called apostles. He is concerned about their thoughts being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And because these false apostles are leading the Corinthians' thoughts astray, this is what he says in chapter 10, verse 3 through 6. Chapter 10, verse 3 through 6 says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So in verse 3, Paul is saying, that he, he, he fights in a way that transcends the, the flesh, what we see in the flesh. It, it's a spiritual fight, and the weapons are spiritual. And the weapons, according to verse 4, are of a divine nature that have the power to destroy strongholds. So what are these strongholds? And I think we get the answer to that in verse 5. Look, they are arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. 
And in 11.4, we see that these false apostles are proclaiming another kind of, of Jesus or another kind of gospel. So if we combine chapter 10, verse 5, with chapter 11, verse 4, about what the problem is, we see this. The problem is that the knowledge of God through the gospel and through Jesus is being attacked by these false apostles. They are distorting the knowledge of God by distorting the gospel and who Jesus is. And here's what can be really difficult about false teachers. They can be really likable. And it seems here as we read this, it, it, it seems that these false apostles, these super apostles, as Paul sarcastically, sarcastically said, were more impressive than Paul. They, they seem to be better communicators, that they seem to present themselves in a way that was more impressive. And, and often false teachers are winsome, likable, crazy, smart, persuasive. And I would imagine that most of these false teachers probably mean well, and they're sincere and, and probably even passionate. But often they, they speak towards difficult doctrines or stereotypes and, and, and try to make it more palatable or, or try to offer a way out of something that might be a more difficult uh, uh, thing to hear. So, for example, many of you are familiar with Rob Bell, who wrote the book Love Wins, which, which basically denies hell as the, as the Bible describes it. And here's an excerpt of what he said. He said, A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven. With the rest of humanity, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell, with no chance for anything better. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world so desperately needs to hear. So for those of us who struggle with the reality of hell, this, this message has a real pull on us. You know, even like when this came out, people who have a hard time with this difficult doctrine maybe saw this as a way out, as a, as a way they didn't have to hold to something they felt was very difficult to bear. But look, hell is just a reality that we have to deal with. It, it's, it's what the Bible, it's what Jesus himself even revealed. In Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so hell is a reality. And, and so I can sympathize with the desire to somehow make it go away. To me, it's a difficult doctrine to hold. But it's settled when, it, when you settle on what you believe about the scriptures. And so we cannot and must not create a God according to our own preferences, but rather the God who is, the God of the Bible. It is that God with whom we must deal. It's been said that God made man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. That we, we, we make God out to what we want him to be, or what, what, what meets our ideas of, of right or, or good. And false teachers, often in an attempt to make God more palatable to the outside world, more loving, more inclusive, end up undermining the gospel and the knowledge of God. And, and the paradigm we often see in our day is, is this, is that the, the false teachers uh, and, and those who are agreeing with them, 
they often portray themselves as victims of the Pharisees. That they they came out of uh, maybe really conservative homes or churches, and man, they were just people were really hard on them, and they were legalistic and kind of beat them over the head with the Bible, and they're just victims of the oppressive Pharisees. And they say these people rule, you know, they love rules more than love. And so we're about love and they're about rules. And so they paint this, this really, uh, these, this bad picture and how they're the, the victims of these oppressive uh, Christians. And so in that, they raise arguments about what the Bible really says. They have things they don't like. And so they, they raise these arguments about it. Lofty opinions against the knowledge of God. That's kind of like what Satan did in the garden. Did God really say that? No, no, God didn't really say that. Here's what he meant to say. And so we must not be, a led, we must not be led astray by thoughts that go against the true knowledge of God. So how should we respond when that does happen? My second point, how should we respond? Let's look again at chapter 10, verse 5 through 6. Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we, we fight against false teaching, teaching that undermines the, the knowledge of God, a teaching that undermines the gospel. We, we fight against that. And, and this is what Paul was doing with the Galatians. In Galatians 1, Paul says, anyone who preaches another gospel, who who raises an argument against the knowledge of God, let him be accursed. And in much of the letter of Galatians, and here's what's it, much of the letter of Galatians, Paul is is hammering this point home about this uh, false gospel that you have to keep the law in order to be a, a, a Christian. So he's, he's fighting against the idea that we're saved by works, that it's Jesus plus you have to be really good to, to be saved. But then he goes on to say this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. And remember, he's fighting most of this letter. He's saying, like, we are saved by grace alone and not by works. But then he says this in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So in the church in Galatia, they had some who were legalistic, that you had to, do, do, you had to keep the law in order to be saved. They were trying to earn God's favor through their performance. And some perhaps thought they were saved by grace, and so it doesn't matter what we do. We can do anything. They use grace as a license to sin, and in that they abused grace. And Paul says, you should not think that you will inherit the kingdom of God. You should not think you are saved if you're using grace as a license to sin. And look, we, we all probably tend towards these, these two uh, the, the, these two ditches, we'll just say, the, the ditch of legalism and, and, and abusing grace, using grace as a license to sin. Um, you know, we can lean towards legalism when we're trying to, we, we see God's view of us based more on how we're doing that day, that week, that season of life. Then we see God viewing us through the, the, the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. We've all probably abused grace. 
we, we've probably thought lightly of sin because, you know, God's grace covered it. Uh, we, we've probably excused ourselves and given ourselves a license to sin because of grace. Well, it's not that big of a, a deal because of grace. You know, Martin Luther once said that, that this, this tendency of getting it wrong, he said, human nature is like a drunk, a, a drunk peasant. Lift him into the saddle on one side, over he topples on the other side. And so some of you, like me, have, have probably in your Christian life experienced that, that back and forth to where maybe you drift towards legalism, then you realize it, and then you maybe drift towards abusing grace. And so it's just something we need to be aware of. And I, I've noticed a, a lot of times, like I mentioned before, sometimes people grow up in conservative homes or conservative churches. And sometimes in a reaction to their, back, their, their background, they drift towards abusing grace. Or, or maybe somebody grew up in a, in a church that wasn't very strong, or in a, and it wasn't really in a Christian home, and, uh, and, and they saw God just being absent. And, and they might be, uh, take, take a, a large concern with, with, with Christians who don't take God serious enough, and they become zealous over, over minor issues, and they, they become maybe somewhat like the Pharisees. And so this happens a lot, and all of us are going to struggle with it to some degree, a little bit one way, a little bit the other way, and probably throughout our life a mixture of both. But here's the thing. There are some who don't just kind of drift a little bit into the ditch like all of us might do, but there are some who just go and go into the ditch on either side, and they say this is actually the way. And they write books about it, and they teach about it, and they have podcasts about it, and they affirm this, and they have the, the villain of the conservative church that's just the Pharisee, that they just care about the rules, and they kind of make a, make, make a, a mockery of it. But, but here's the thing. The, the true gospel, which gives us the true knowledge of God, is the only corrective. Now, I think I've often shared Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 and it, to me, that, that is a good corrective. It's a good gauge of how you are operating spiritually. Titus 2, 11 through 12 says this, For the grace of God has appeared. All right, so the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what trains us, according to that passage, what trains us to renounce ungodliness? It's the grace of God. And what trains us to live upright, godly lives? It's the grace of God. And so the grace of God, when, when, when rightly understood, rather than excusing ungodliness, right, it, it, will, it will promote godliness. And, and, it, and it could even be when somebody really gets grace— and, and, it, and it propels them into renouncing ungodliness and seeking godliness, it might look legalistic to many people from the outside. And that's why you need to be very careful about uh, declaring someone else legalistic. They might be as free as a bird. Because when you get grace, your obedience gets pretty intense. Like you renounce ungodliness and you live an upright and godly life. And so maybe if you're quick to accuse others of being legalistic, maybe you don't get grace and you just don't have a category for radical obedience that is rooted in the grace of God. So if we have no motivation to obey, then we're missing something about grace. And if there isn't deep joy in our obedience, 
then we're missing something about grace. And knowing the true gospel, the true Jesus, gives us the true knowledge of who God is, his holiness and his love. And, and on that, everything else is built. That's the foundation, right? The gospel is the foundation of who God is. And so whenever we are presented with some argument or idea that undermines the gospel, the, the knowledge of who God is, we have to fight against it. And it's not just us being weird or uptight. This is the, the, the core of, of, of what we believe, of who God is, and everything else will come out of that. And so in that, we fight against it and take every thought captive to obey Jesus. So this idea of taking every thought captive to obey Jesus is about defending the gospel from the outside and from within. And now, you might be thinking about this, this verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, and you've, you've heard this verse before, to, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And you might have always thought of it in terms of um, guarding your thought life. You know, think about good things, think, think about um, godly things, don't be thinking about bad things. And, and it, it isn't that that's wrong, but I don't think that's the main idea that Paul has here. Because if you put 10.5 in context with chapters 10 and 11, it seems to me that Paul is, what he's saying that we should guard against is being led astray from a sincere, uh, a, a sincere devotion to Christ by lofty opinions and arguments raised against the knowledge of God. So I, I think this idea of take captive every thought is more specific about guarding against the gospel than it is about just having positive thoughts and not negative thoughts or, or, or holy thoughts and not unholy thoughts, though I think that's obviously a, a, a fine thing to do. But, but I, I remember when I, when I read this passage before, and, and thinking it seemed odd, I read verse 5, you know, verse 5 is a good, like the, the, you know, take every thought captive to obey Christ. You can just kind of tweet that out. That's a good verse. Makes sense just kind of by itself, even though you might not get it in the whole context. But then you read verse 5, and then you read verse 6, and verse 6 seems really odd when you put it right next to verse 5. So take every thought captive to be obedient to Christ. Good. Verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So verse 5, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Verse 6, be ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It just seems odd unless you understand it as, as in the context of chapter 10 and chapter 11. So like if I were to come to you and say, hey, or if I were to send you a text and I were to say, hey, just wanted to encourage you to, to, to guard your thoughts and make your thoughts obedient to Christ. Take, take every thought captive to obey Christ. I text you that, that verse. You'd be like, yep, sounds good. Thanks for the text. And then right after that, I send you this text. Also, be ready to punish every disobedience. You think, that's weird. And so if I send that back to back, it seems really odd, but that's why we have to understand in the context of 10 and 11 what we're getting at. And so here's what I think is going on. Verse 5 is about taking every thought captive in, in preserving and defending the true gospel, the, the knowledge of God. And so when outsiders come in or authors, pastors, teachers, podcasts, whoever comes in and begins to undermine the, the gospel, the true knowledge of God, then we need to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And when you understand that, that verse 5 is about defending the gospel, verse 6 makes more sense. Because in Paul's letter, he often dealt with the issue of church discipline. 
Now, what church discipline is, is when someone is removed from the church or excommunicated. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Titus 3. Church discipline happens when someone is in habitual, unrepentant sin, and they, they, they refuse to, to, to change. They're going to stay in doing that. And so if they don't repent, they are removed from the church. Really, in a sense, when a person is removed from the church, it's their decision. Because if they repent and turn to the Lord, all is well. They are welcome back. But if they refuse to repent, then they're removed from the church. Paul wrote, wrote about this in multiple places. And so when Paul says in verse 6 that they need to be ready to punish every disobedience, he is referring to church discipline removing these false teachers from the church. And so Paul is trying to protect and preserve the church in Corinth from these false teachers who are coming in, undermining the gospel through, the, the, uh, through teaching what is, goes against the true knowledge of God. And remember, Paul's heart for the Corinthians is that they not be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And this happens by preserving and protecting the gospel by guarding the true knowledge of God, of who he is, who Jesus is, and what the gospel is. So, in conclusion, be careful what teachers and authors, podcasts, and influencers you listen to. There's a lot of bad teaching out there. There's a lot of bad quotes out there. There's a lot of things that are winsome and persuasive uh, by people who are likable and impressive and crazy smart that will undermine the, the true knowledge of God. They are lofty opinions and arguments against the knowledge of God, even if they don't, even if it's coming from a sincere person who means well. So we need to be careful and fight against this. We need to guard our thoughts with the gospel with the true knowledge of God, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ so that we may be able to obey Christ with sincerity and devotion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have preserved your word for us to know you. Help us to know you from your word and to know you rightly. Help us to not create you into our own image or what we think you should be or uh, what others think you should be, but help us to be formed by the word of God of who, who is our God. What is the gospel? May that form our, our, in our minds and may we follow and obey you in that. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.